Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 7th, 2017. On this week's show, David Epstein of ProPublica will join us for a conversation about Usain Bolt's career and the Jamaican's final 100-meter race, a loss to 35-year-old American Justin Gatlin. Ken Early of the Irish Times and the Second Captains podcast will also be here to discuss Neymar's record-setting $250 million-plus transfer from Barcelona to Paris Saint-Germain and what it means for the Brazilian soccer star and the sport. And we'll discuss reports of a split in the Baltimore Ravens front office about whether to sign Colin Kaepernick and whether it's appropriate for the team to ask fans for advice on what it should do. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. You know, we sometimes ask listeners what we should talk about. I don't see what the problem is. We'll get to that in segment uh, three. Oh, okay, good. But first, at the Olympics in 2008, 2012, and 2016, and at the Track and Field World Championships in 2009, 2011, 2013, and 2015, Usain Bolt started 20 finals in the 100, the 200, and the 4 by 100 meter relay, and he won gold in all 20. At what he says will be his last world championships, the 30-year-old Jamaican ran a competitive individual 100-meter race for the final time on Saturday in London's Olympic Stadium. Here's what it sounded like. There's the gun. Bolt out slow. Christian Coleman has two strides on him. Can he reel him in? Christian Coleman trying to win the championship. Bolt at the line. Photo finish. It could be Gatlin as well. And the entire crowd. Coleman thinks he's got it. Coleman thinks he has it. Gatlin thinks he has it. And Usain Bolt thinks he has it. Shows Justin Gatlin as the world champion. Those boos you heard at the end were for Justin Gatlin, who's been suspended for doping twice in his career and who, at 35, is as old today as Bolt will be in 2022. Gatlin won with a time of 9.92 seconds, a time Bolt has surpassed 39 times in his career, with fellow American Christian Coleman crossing the line in 9.94 and Bolt getting the bronze in 9.95. Joining us now to discuss is David Epstein of ProPublica. David is also the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Hello, Dave. Hi. Thanks for having me. Pleasure as always. Uh, This was not actually that slow of a time for Bolt, given his recent history. It was actually his season best. And as Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated pointed out, he's run faster than 98 just twice since the London Games in 2012. Even so, given that Bolt has always risen to the occasion in these big races, 
it was shocking to see him cross the line third. And it seemed clear in real time that the issue for him was the start. Um, and indeed, he had the second slowest reaction time of anyone in the field. So what did you make of his slow start? Yeah, I mean, not only did he have, uh, th- was that a slow reaction time, but in most fields, that would have been the slowest reaction time. That that was a really, re- he's never been the fastest guy off the gun, but that was a really slow reaction time. So slow that it actually made the difference in the race, which usually, uh, that's not such a big deal. Usually his margins are are well outside of, you know, what reaction to the gun would make any difference. Um, that said, he still didn't pull away or, or catch up in this case, Um in the middle of the race the way he normally does. But I think people who really follow track and field and sort of watch it earlier in the season are sort of used to seeing him like that sometimes. It's just you never see him that way when it comes to the championship races. So I think you get a sense of kind of how lucky we've been for a decade to see him do what he's done and miraculously, you know, overcome injuries six weeks out from some championship race and and pull it together. Um, And that's, that's a tough thing to do. And I think he just was a little more, a little more human this time. A little more human, a little older. Uh, maybe he simply doesn't have that top end speed to overcome the slow starts that he has historically had. Uh, Ross Tucker pointed out on a thread on Twitter that out of the gate, Bolt lost four and six one hundredths of a second to Coleman and Gatlin. And in the past where he might've been able to make that up, he just wasn't able to do that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I'm not totally sold. That he, I don't think he's like expired due to age or anything like that. But maybe he's expired due to enthusiasm. Uh, it, it's not clear how rigorously he trained leading up to this. And he didn't seem to be as into it as we've seen him in the past. Yeah, I don't think he's ever been a guy that wanted to race a million times or for a million years. I think that's that's totally clear. Um, and so I think there's, you know, there's definitely something to that. If if the race were held a month from now, I'd say I would still bet on him. I wouldn't bet on him to run nine six. But you know, th- this was in a previous World Championships um, before the Rio Olympics. He really should have lost to Gatlin by a nose there. Except when Bolt caught up to Gatlin, uh, who had a great start, he pulled up beside him. Gatlin kind of admittedly choked and leaned too early, and Bolt beat him. You know, and that's sort of the things, the kind of thing that like mythical figures are made of. But he had to get lucky to win that one, basically. Um, and it's always, you know, I, I mean, frankly, when he's, he's, this is like the second or third time he's dealt with injuries, like about a month out from a championship race. And he's just managed both through, through luck and being faster than the other guys, I guess, um, to, to pull it out in the last second. And it just didn't, didn't happen this time. A little disappointed with your ex post facto reasoning there, Fatsis. If he had won, you would have said, oh, he was so relaxed. And uh, you know, he, he showed his typical joie de vivre that has always uh, carried him in these championships. And the fact that he is... I, I would not have said joie de vivre. <laughs> the fact that he's not like tense up to these races, uh, you know, in, a, in an event where relaxation is so important. That's what led him to victory. Well, in, in Stefan's defense, I think that that does cut sort of both ways. I think it's been, you know, when he was, he ran one of the most impressive running races of any kind ever when he was 17 years old and ran 19.9 in the 200 meters. Like, look for the winning 200 meters time at this World Championships. And he ran 19.92, I think, when he was 17. Um, And then he sort of disappeared for a little while because he was dealing with injuries and, you know, eventually had to switch coaches and sort of started listening to his body more and taking more time off and then dominated for a decade. And so I think there's, you know, he, he may not have kind of the store of training that will keep him going in his mid thirties. But at the same time, I think his, his sort of psychological approach has been critical to being able to, to step up at championships, even when he wasn't in the best shape. So, um, so basically Josh, we're all just piling on you here. (laughs) So our former intern, Adam Willis wrote a piece for slate last week, asking the question of a bunch of folks, including you, uh, Dave, about whether Bolt maximized his potential, which seems like a ridiculous question to ask, but this is a ridiculous athlete his world record in the 100 was 958 if uh you ask Usain Bolt he should have run a 9.4 on the continuum of folks who Adam interviewed you were more on the end of Bolt's running as fast as he could have possibly run while some other people said like oh maybe under certain other conditions he could have gotten closer to 9.4 can you explain your reasoning there well, I mean, I, I think, you know, had he, he never had like the maximum allowable tailwind in a race. So I think clearly if, if that had happened, he could have run faster. But 
he, he was definitely a guy who needed the spotlight moment to run as hard as he could or, or even to prepare as hard as he could. And so you think of how many chances do you even have uh, to do that in your prime? It's just a couple. And in, in Berlin, you know, when he was in just blowing away the world, he got a great start. You know, it wasn't the fastest reaction of the gun, but that's only a small part of the start. He had a great field to push him. It was a very fast track. He was totally healthy. You know, a bunch of things that came together for him. It's not to say that he couldn't have maybe run a little bit faster, but a bunch of things have to come together. Like some guys who've been the best sprinters in the world have never won an Olympic gold medal because their entire peak, you know, when they were healthy, they, it hasn't coincided with having good enough races or championship races. And so they've kind of been obscure because their peak has come and gone between Olympics. And he had a peak at the right time where there were um, great competitors at Olympics and world championships held in good conditions where he had, uh, you know, a string of healthy training. And so maybe he could have run a little bit faster, but um, I'm, I'm not convinced. I mean, he raced so little compared to most top guys that he only really had a small number of chances. And I think that led to him maximizing those, but also meant that it was, you know, he wasn't going to take a hundred cracks at this. And so I, I think he probably got pretty close to, to where he was going to get. Is it surprising, Dave, that there was never a multi-million dollar effort either by a sponsor or I guess Nike would be a sponsor um, in that, that case as well, like we saw with the sub two hour marathon where somebody offered Bolt $10 million to try to get under 9.5 and they gave him the maximum allowable tailwind and they did all of the kind of, um, not trickery, but you know they set all of the conditions ideally to see how fast he could possibly go. Oh my God, they could have had like a fan <laughs> behind him moving at Going. the same speed. Oh, that would have been awesome. So why, oh. why didn't that happen? Well, you know, Justin Gatlin has done the fan uh, run. <laughs> um, yeah. so, so that's been done. I think, I don't know, partly I think it would be a little less, um, there'd be less narrative drama, right? Like the Nike two-hour project was like several hours that they could intersperse with information and, and you know, product advertisements and things like that, whereas... Uh, the the history of that sort of thing in sprinting, like notably going back to when Michael Johnson and Donovan Bailey, um, after the Atlanta Olympics, decided to race in a 150, where Donovan Bailey was the 100-meter champion and Michael Johnson the 200, and it was like a notorious disaster, basically. Um, Michael Johnson pulled up, the venue was really weird and all this stuff, so I think there's probably some lingering trauma for that yeah. sort of thing. But But Bolt was, you know, estimated to be worth about $20 million a year as it was, and I think his... His personality kind of, I mean, some of my favorite moments of him are like when a cameraman accidentally ran him over with a Segway and he just did like a backward somersault, you know, after he'd won a world championship and started laughing or when a, a, a young woman with like flowers came after he won a race to give him the flowers and throw them in a stand. She got too close and he like ran her over. So just like put her over his shoulder and kept running like his, I think his natural personality was plenty, uh, you know, you could only kind of probably take away from that with, with stunts, I think not, not really add to what he was already doing naturally. Uh, Tim Layden had a piece on NBC before the race in which he called Bolt tracks safe space. Uh, Ross Tucker said that Gatlin replacing Bolt is removing a bandage to reveal a wound. Track and doping are at a terrible point right now. And they've always been at a terrible point right, for the last 40 years. But right now, cynicism and suspicion are really high. Uh, the, we, we have the, the example of Russia's entire athletics program pretty much substandard like African we testing the we have the example of all of Russia all of Russia <laughs> yeah. substandard African testing NBC showed athletes getting these reallocated medals from previous world championships during its coverage Kara Goucher was one of those medalists from 10 years ago she got a medal um, yeah. the, the, that was in she got a silver when she had I think finished bronze right Dave yeah um, this is is Justin Gatlin winning here a bad thing? Well, l let me first say that uh, track is doping is probably outside of Russia, but there's always been something like that going on in in Olympic sports. Um, is in a better place, I think, than from a doping perspective than it has been almost ever. And the in terms of, in terms of the proportion of athletes that are using. Yeah, and, and the degree and the magnitude to which they're using. Right. Because there, there's some methods now that even if they don't catch them, it sort of hems in the amount they can dope. So there's still a disadvantage compared to athletes of the past. Um, and 
the proportion of drug scandals you have in a sport is, in my opinion, directly proportional to uh, how hard you're trying to catch any of this, right? Like when Von Miller, the Super Bowl MVP, conspired with a urine collector um, to get rid of his sample and was suspended for six games, like nobody even knows that he was a Super Bowl MVP and nobody even knows that, right? It, there's nobody even pays attention to it. And so I think it's as track and field, you know, the track and field community seems to care a lot about doping. And so they kind of demand uh, more testing. There's more motivation for people like me to go and expose things. Um, but I don't think it's because it's in a, it's in a worse place. Um, but it is that the community really cares about it. And so there, there is that cloud, but I also think that's sort of something you have to go through to get to a better place. As far as Gatlin, like it's, it's not ideal. There's no question about it. I think the story, the good versus evil has been a little bit exaggerated though. Like I was yeah. running in college when Gatlin was running in college and his first positive test was for ADHD medication at a time when like we had no knowledge that we were supposed to like list any of that kind of stuff we were taking. And a bunch of people were getting pop for that and we're only getting six months suspensions because it's acknowledged that like there wasn't good enough education about listing medications you've been taking his second you know i think he'd do better to talk about it more openly but there was something like 20 tests he took right around that positive and so it's just it's an odd scenario that to me does not suggest this is like lance armstrong uh 2.0 here right and, uh, and he's not a bad person justin gatlin yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely not ideal, and I'd have no problem with harder penalties for doping. But the like always being mentioned as two times drugs cheat, like yeah. the, the lists that go around, you know, and, and I think they're totally valid where they cross out um, everyone in, who's run a top hundred meter time who's had a doping suspension. Like, I mean, Johan Blake and Asafa Powell tested positive for a low grade stimulant that wasn't listed on the product they were taking, that wasn't even listed on the banned substances, right? So I think they have a fair claim. It was acknowledged. There's Bands were so short because it was acknowledged, A, the product wasn't listed either on the band list or on the product they took, and they could document that they took it and all this stuff. So I think everyone getting lumped together as if they were all like part of the Russian doping machine is, you know, a little counterproductive because you, in some ways it's good when you have some of these scandals because it means you're, you're, you're trying to get something, right? And so it's, a, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So with Gatlin, why do you think it is that he's become this sort of avatar for cheating and this like locus of fan contempt and hatred. You know, I alluded to it before the booing as he was announced as the winner. And there were even reports they moved the medal ceremony for the 100 meter uh, championships to a time outside the broadcast window, um, perhaps because they didn't want uh, to show Gatlin getting the golds during prime viewing hours. I mean, I, I, I totally get it. You know, I, I would like to have seen someone else uh, win also. You know, at the same time, it's like the British fans that are booing him didn't didn't react that way to Dwayne Chambers, who, like, had an extensive documented role in Balco, right? Well, I was going to so also mention, like, Tyson Gay is another American sprinting champion who um, has had a positive test. But it doesn't strike me that he faces the same contempt as Gallon. I think it might be because Gallon is still running so well at age 35. And so there's attendant suspicion around that. Right. There was no question when he, you know, in the years, previous years when he wasn't running as well, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but also, I think, you know, there's even, even while I think he's been vilified more than is necessary, um, he was with a coach that had a lot of positive tests when he had his uh, positive test. So that means, you know, you don't always deserve the benefit of the doubt. And I don't think, I think eventually he sort of, um, had to embrace this sort of like, well, I'm just going to have to look past all the booze kind of thing. And, and so maybe portrayed a little bit of a harder personality, whereas he'd been kind of just this million dollar smile kind of guy before. And I think that's what he's had to do to keep going. Um, and so I think he has a right to do that. And I think fans have a right to boo him. Uh, also, but I think it's more him as as kind of a symbol of something than actually Justin Gatlin himself. And I think that the comparison, it seemed like people were stretching to find comparisons to pe the fans booing Justin Gatlin. I think the comparison was obvious. It was Barry Bonds playing in his mid-40s under suspicion, early 40s yeah. under suspicion. Yeah, definitely. Except in this case, also, I'd say American, um, you know, American fans are largely like in many cases, booing Gatlin as well. Whereas I think Barry was still cheered in San Francisco. I, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. But um, yeah, but I agree. David Epstein is a writer for ProPublica, and he is the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance. Thanks for coming on the show, Dave. Thanks for having me. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we move on to Neymar, I want to let you know that we are going to be in the market for a new intern soon. If you'd like to work with us starting in September, and if you're in Washington, D.C., and you're free on Mondays, drop us a line at hangup at slate.com. Also, our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we're going to talk about the joys and perhaps even the non-joys, although the non-joys are minimal, of the City Open Tennis Tournament in Washington, D.C. We're going to tell you all about it on the bonus segment. If you want to hear about that, please join Slate Plus for the low price of just $35 a year or $5 a month, and you can become the owner of a Slate tote bag. Very handsome. Plus, get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash plus. Neymar did okay in his four years playing alongside Lionel Messi at Barcelona. 105 goals, one Champions League title, two Spanish League titles, three Spanish Cup titles. But the time had come for the 25-year-old Brazilian to spread his wings and leave the nest. Or at least the time had come for Paris Saint-Germain to pay Barcelona $263 million in transfer fees for Neymar services, plus another $35 million a year in salary for a total layout that could approach $600 million. Is Neymar worth it? On the one hand, of course he's worth it. That's what the market said he's worth. On the other, the market in this case is being set by the government of Qatar, which effectively owns PSG. Joining us now to discuss this and more football is our friend Ken Early. He's a columnist for the Irish Times and a host of the Second Captains podcast. Hey, Ken. Hey, Stephen, how are you? Very well. In a column today, you write that Neymar is moving from one of the best clubs in Europe, and hence the world, to play with, quote, inferior teammates in the continent's fifth strongest league for a club that nobody took seriously until it was bought by Qatar six years ago. No great footballer has ever willingly accepted such a demotion for money, but Neymar is a player of unusually single-minded focus, end quote. So, Ken, I guess we can mark you down as believing that Neymar's move here is about about one thing, and it isn't playing great football and winning continental championships. Is that correct? Yeah, I feel as though it's. I mean, what the, the, the thing that annoys me about this transfer is why Neymar kind of pretends that it's for any other reason. I mean, if you make a decision for money, why is it not you know permissible to say that's why you've made the decision? Because it's pretty clear that's what's happened here. If he wanted to win uh, championships, as you said, uh, if he wanted to play great football. He's already with the best possible club to do that. In fact, he's already won uh, a lot of stuff with this club. He's played some amazing football. Uh, Every time that Messi, Suarez and Neymar have played, it's almost like an event. It's like we might see something today that we've never seen before. He's leaving all that behind to go and play for a club which does not play in a serious league. Uh, A league where really all the best players leave as soon as the first good opportunity uh, to do so arises. Uh, and he's doing so because they'll make him the best paid player in the world, which uh, is, is clearly uh, absolutely his entitlement to do. Uh, but I do find it, um, I think it's a new thing. I can't remember um, an example of a player as good as him, because uh, Neymar is a great player, um, to voluntarily step back from the highest level of the game. Uh, but at the height of his powers, the height of his abilities, playing alongside the best player in the world, to step away from all that, to, to move to a, a club where, you know, the league football is really, you know, of a, it, it's there's no comparison between the standard of football he's going to be playing in the French League and what he has been playing uh, in the Spanish League. I can't remember another great player who's done that because football is usually <laughs> the most important thing to them. I mean, they're, they're going to make a lot of money no matter where they are. Neymar is already the third highest paid footballer in the world. So... What what I'm puzzled by is why the extra money? I mean, it's a huge amount of extra money, but why does it make so much of a difference to him? If you're already making $37 million, 
you know, what's the difference between that and, and $70 million? Um, if you, <laughs> easy, $33 million? Easy for us to say. Well, I would, I would say this. It's different if he was the third highest paid player in the world and the third best player in the world. But the, you know, the, but Messi wasn't on his team. It would be different for him, I think, emotionally, psychologically, however you want to term it. It feels similar to me to what's happening with Kyrie Irving, a guy who I think is not as good or is not as, um, you know, high quality in, in terms of, you know, comparison to other players in the league as Neymar is, but who has had all this success with LeBron, but he's never going to be a, a guy other than LeBron's teammate if he stays on the Cavs and I think wants to move to a team where he would be the best player and and be on a worse team. So it's not unprecedented, I think, in that regard to want to be the best player on your team and be the face of a franchise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been hearing this so much. I. Well, I don't really understand the psychology. I mean, at one sort of level, this is, I mean, you, you know, you could say, uh, like Lucifer, you know, he wasn't prepared to uh, serve in heaven, would rather reign in hell. I mean, that's that, that's an over-dramatized way of looking at this. It's not like moving to Paris on, you know, 70 million years is going to be uh, oh, that, that awful. Yeah, but, but the, It's but a lot the, of the bread idea, and cheese. <laughs> It, it, it just seems as though the idea of, well, like, I can never be as good as Messi, so I'm going to sort of run away and, and go to a, you know, a, a much smaller pond and be the biggest fish in that much smaller pond. I don't really see that as being the mentality of a great sportsman. There was an interesting piece on, on Bloomberg over the weekend that talks about the financial structure of Paris Saint-Germain and how it impacts what's happened here. I mean, this is an enormous amount of money for a transfer fee. It is the first time that the record transfer fee has doubled in, in world soccer. In 85 years, the last time was when a guy named Bernabe Ferreira moved to River Plate from Club Atletico Tigre in Argentina for 23,000 pounds. So times have changed. Um, but what's underlying all of this is how much money Paris has at its disposal because of its ownership. And this is in spite of the new financial fair play rules that UEFA, the European soccer organizing body, instituted that state that a club can spend, what is it, 30 million euros more than it earns in a season if the loss is covered by a direct contribution from owners. But what the uh, Oryx Qatar sports investment group that owns the team and is a vehicle for the Qatari government has done is basically say, oh, we're going to give you a $200 million sponsorship fee to the club and that'll count as revenue. The, 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 the financial tables here are lopsided and, and, and it's kind of striking that the, the financial table here is collapsing. Yeah, it's a, I mean, this is exactly the sort of thing that financial fair play theoretically, um, you know, when UEFA brought it in a few years ago, was was meant to be discouraging or, or making it more difficult. Uh, the idea that um, somebody very rich could come in, take over a club and, and start just throwing uh, money around without any sort of, uh, let's say, organic basis, you know, for the club to, to be spending that kind of right. money. Right, tickets, without television any. revenue, sponsorship deals that are real, etc. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so so they did, of of course. Uh, they said, okay, well, you know, our club actually has a gigantic income. Look at the enormous uh, uh, deals that we have to advertise, uh, you know, from say the Qatar Tourism Authority and all this sort of stuff. So everybody could see what was going on, and UEFA actually fined them and imposed various punitive conditions on them, like they couldn't play with a full squad in the Champions League, and there was, you know, various sort of things. But it's 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 like. Um, the Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp was was speaking about it recently, and he, you know he's one of the people who could uh, be affected by the knock-on effects of this in the sense that Barcelona, uh, in the effort to replace Neymar, may try to sign Coutinho from Liverpool, so they might lose a player, obviously gaining a lot of money, but a player that they can't replace for this money. And his his lineup was just okay. Obviously, we know financial fair play is is more of a suggestion than an actual rule. You know, quite has quite as to how. Um, Paris are going to demonstrate that all their sums add up and they haven't infringed any of the conditions remains to be seen. But, you know, I'm sure they've got the accountants 
uh, I'm sure they've got the accounting and legal expertise uh, to show that everything that they've done has happened within the rules. I mean, that generally is uh, one of the advantages of being super rich. Uh, you can sort of you can sort of sit down and, and show. Well, actually, you know, financially, legally, uh, accounting wise, all of this makes sense. You know, what's your problem? Isn't the flaw in your thinking around um, around this move that the reason that Barcelona had all of the talent that it had, I mean, Messi was developed by by the club, but they spent a crap load of money on Suarez and Neymar. So why couldn't PSG spend a crap load of, of money on guys in addition to Neymar? And then Neymar would just be the star of that team and they'll win the Champions League. Hooray. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is true. I mean, it's not, it's not as though Cristiano Ronaldo is playing for Real Madrid just because of the famous white shirt Ferenc Buscas, you know, Alfredo Di Stefano. He also he also gets to be the best paid player in the world. Um, you know, Messi's the second best paid player. Barcelona and Real Madrid pay the biggest salaries in the sport. Um, I mean, maybe you, you may have a situation where Manchester City are... Um, uh, are up to, I mean, actually, if I the most recent figures I can find, Barcelona are actually fifth, uh, Manchester United fourth, and this is in all sports, you know, behind the LA Clippers, the New York Yankees, and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So the point is that, yes, Barcelona and Real Madrid, they do pay uh, enormous uh, money, and players who are going there are going there both for the highest level of the game and the money. But the thing is that the two, the two things have usually gone together. Paris Saint-Germain is a bit of a, an outlier here. Well, let me, let me ask you this, though, Ken. Is the gap between Paris and the rest of the French League greater than the gap between Barcelona, Real, and Atletico and the rest of La Liga? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. There's no, there's no, um, there's no comparison. It's evidently getting even more so um, now, that, now that Neymar has arrived. And, who, and you can't just have Neymar. You're going to have to have a bit of a better supporting cast then he's got there. So you imagine that you know this signals even even further spending from Paris, and the gap is going to get even bigger. Um, you know, from that point of view, the problem is that that Paris would almost be better off subsidising the rest of the league to come up to a better standard uh, than they are sort of piling all the talent into one uh, into one club, which is going to dominate easily. Now, the, obviously, the French league to them is is in fact an afterthought. It's all about the Champions League, and Neymar will certainly still be playing in the Champions League. And you could say, well, he's still playing at the highest level, but not really as much as he would have been otherwise, and certainly not with players, not with teammates on the level that he had. See, this is this is the odd thing about it. To to walk away from that, to walk away from the highest level of competition because you're going to be getting paid, is an extraordinary move. I, 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 and I think back, I can't think of any great player who's done it before. Let's do an obituary for the Messi, Suarez, Neymar group with Barcelona. When um, Neymar signed on to the club, there were questions or concerns about how they would work together. In the end, how do you think that partnership worked out? And how do you think that... Um, it helped or hurt Neymar as far as the development of his um, skills. I think it worked. I think it worked out really well. Um, I think it worked out um, better than maybe could have been expected at the time. And I think that Neymar deserves some credit for that because when Neymar joined Barcelona, he was already a, a superstar in Brazil. Um, and you know, the, the 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 question was whether he would be able to come into a team which was obviously going to be dominated by Lionel Messi. Lionel Messi, who at that time was an even more domineering figure in terms of the, how the team played than he now is. Because at the time, which is um, which is 2013, uh, when Neymar joined, Messi, Messi had been scoring so many goals for Barcelona. He'd become such a central part of their goal-scoring play that it was it was actually a little stifling on some of the players around him. But since uh, Neymar arrived, and especially since Luis Suarez arrived uh, the following year, Messi has uh, adapted brilliantly, as you would expect uh, from the best in the world, has, find a, has found a way to change what he's doing on the field in order to allow the other two to play brilliantly as well, to get the, most, the, the, the best, the most out of all three of them. Ken Early is a columnist for the Irish Times and a host of the Second Captains podcast. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks so many. Good talking to you. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. On Sunday, the Miami Dolphins signed ex-Broncos, ex-Bears quarterback Jay Cutler to a one-year, $10 million contract after the team starter, Ryan Tannehill, suffered a knee injury in training camp. The 34-year-old Cutler, who had signed on with Fox to be a color analyst on the TV this fall, is coming out of his short retirement to play for Dolphins head coach Adam Gase, who was his offensive coordinator in 2015. Uh, that was one of Cutler's best season. So the move makes a certain amount of sense, Gase-Cutler reunion. Now onto a move that makes less sense. With training camps underway across the league, Colin Kaepernick remains unsigned. The Baltimore Ravens, whose starter Joe Flacco is hurt and whose backup Ryan Mallett recently threw five interceptions in a single practice, recently signed an Arena League quarterback named David Olsen to bolster the team's quarterbacking lineup. For the last week or so, they've been openly pondering whether to sign Kaepernick, who you'd think has a more impressive resume than Arena League quarterback David Olsen. I'm supposed to say no offense there, but I mean to offend you, David Olsen. Offense. Offense intended. Ravens owner Steve Bashotti has been, I suppose, admirably candid in saying that he's weighing public opinion about whether to sign the one-time anthem protester, telling fans at a fan forum, we're very sensitive to it and we're monitoring it, adding, so pray for us. Stefan, have you been praying for the Ravens? I pray for the Ravens daily, and I think it's the only way that Steve Bashotti will get to a, a real honest decision on what to do about Colin Kaepernick. Pray harder, dude, because he hasn't, he hasn't, cause he hasn't decided hasn't, yet. No, he hasn't decided yet. Um, that is only one of the the really offensive things about about the Ravens' approach to Kaepernick and the league generally, the way they've approached the Colin Kaepernick lack of non-signing. But I want to defend – what's that guy's name, the quarterback? David Olsen. David Olsen. I forgot already. David Olsen is what's known in the NFL as a camp arm – He's a guy you bring in to throw with the third team so that everybody can catch the ball, especially the guys who are going to get cut in three weeks. Don't you Camp usually arm. want a guy with a face? No, you just want an arm. <laughs> Camp arm. Okay. So David Olson, Camp arm, congratulations. You will never play in the NFL regardless of whether the Ravens Ooh. sign Colin Kaepernick or not. Let's, let's keep that on tape. But Stefan says you're never going to play in the NFL. Motivation. So – Reports are that um, Ozzie Newsom, the GM, and the coach, John Harbaugh, are pro-Kaepernick, and Bashadi has his doubts. Um, John Mara, the Giants owner, has said, also, I, I think, I don't know if it's admirable, but it's at least good that he's being transparent, that they've gotten a huge amount of calls and letters from fans basically saying, if you sign this guy, we're never going to watch another game again. That whether we believe that's true or not, or whether we believe it's true enough and numbers to make a difference, it seems to be having an effect on owners. Or, or would you argue that they're just using it as cover and it actually doesn't matter? To yes, them? I would argue that they're just using it for cover and that what is going on is that this reveals the political beliefs and the lack of progressive uh, interests and motivations that that characterize the NFL, not just on Colin Kaepernick, but on a host of other issues, the way they approach uh, their role as the purveyors of the most popular, at least television sport in, in, in America. I mean, look, teams could make decisions, irrespective of politics. They could just say that Kaepernick is a decent man. He has dedicated the last year of his life to making society better through volunteer work, through charity work, through consciousness raising. He is outspoken. We respect that. We may not agree with him politically. Um, and owners could say unequivocally, people have different political beliefs. They're allowed to express them. And we're behind that. And we understand that a lot of fans might disagree with that. So they could do something along the lines of saying that along with, we think this will make us a better football team. And ultimately that is the decision that we are making. But they're not doing that. So either you have to believe that they think that Colin Kaepernick is no better a quarterback than David Olson is, or that there is something else going on. And the consensus 
among players who have spoken out about it and among, among people like us is that there's got to be something else going on here. Just looking at opensecrets.org and Bashati has donated a bunch to conservative PACs and candidates. This was a story written in 2013 around the time of the Ravens 49ers Super Bowl. And so coincidentally, it notes that Colin Kaepernick's father, Rick, donated to uh, a Republican congressional candidate. So Colin Kaepernick's father, Steve Bashati, maybe a meeting of the minds. Mm -hmm. We can get this thing done. Ray Lewis, of course, said rather incoherently yeah. that Kaepernick should. I always look to Ray Lewis from, as, a, as a guide, leader on these kinds um, of matters. Said that Kaepernick should let his play do the talking, which I guess is ironic because nobody is letting him play. Mm -hmm. So he's not allowed to do any talking now. But this is a franchise that um, has employed Terrell Suggs. He has multiple domestic violence accusations. A franchise that uh, employed Ray Lewis, who was uh, accused of murder. This is a franchise that um, employed Ray Rice and then you know, decided to get rid of him after massive outcry for a long period of time. It wasn't a decision that they came to quickly or easily. And Bashadi has defended Rice in the press, talking about what a, a good duty is. I mean, I guess it's a different situation when it's your own player and you feel like invested in the person. Um, but the obvious difference between those guys and Colin Kaepernick is Kaepernick isn't even alleged to have done anything wrong. He, uh, you know, protested the national anthem and it just feels like so tired at this point, this topic, but it just needs to be said repeatedly. Like, I don't feel bad about repeating myself in this instance. No, no. That it's just unbelievable what is going on with this dude. Um, given the lack of, you know, quarterbacking talent in this league, it does seem like there's been some movement where you hear a little bit less from the people who say Colin Kaepernick is just actively bad. And that's why nobody in the NFL is signing him. Um, and it's now, it, it does seem like the conversation is now more centered around the question of owners right. and his activism. And so that, I guess, in some ways feels like progress. And it's not just players that we might expect to come to Colin Kaepernick's defense and be more outspoken about social causes, whether that's Doug Baldwin or Richard Sherman of the Seahawks, Malcolm Jenkins of the Eagles. They've all talked about Colin Kaepernick and how they believe that something more is going on. He's than, getting blackballed. He's getting blackballed. Um, Derek Carr, the Raiders quarterback, said this past week that Colin Kaepernick's a great player and he should be playing in the NFL. Um, so that, you know, the, the, the narrative progresses and the conversation progresses and all of it, and this is what's really remarkable to me, all of this is happening without Colin Kaepernick having said a thing. He is not, he's not made this a political issue about himself. He has not been standing on some soapbox on speaker's corner talking about how, what an injustice is being done here. This sort of vortex, he's the vortex. This has just been a hurricane, a tornado that's been circling around him. Kaepernick's girlfriend did tweet out an image of uh, Bashati hugging Ray Lewis alongside uh, Leonardo DiCaprio hugging Sam Jackson in Django Unchained. That was provocative. Well, there's no way the Ravens <laughs> are signing Kaepernick's girlfriend now. I think that's right. So I think the conversation needs to now move to the next phase, and it has in some ways, which is to talk about whether NFL ownership and management are doing this deliberately. Are they colluding to not sign Colin Kaepernick? Here, and that's a more complicated question. It is a more complicated question. Before we get to that, and, and I'll transition from Jay Cutler into collusion. Um, when Cutler retired a few months ago, in his statement, he said, um, you're either forced to leave or you lose the desire to do what's required to keep going. I'm in between those situations at this point in my life, meaning that he maybe wanted to play and maybe he didn't have any passion or desire to play anymore. Um, he also said, quoting Henry Rollins, um, I gave everything I had to give. Now, if I returned, it would be repetition. It might be fun repetition, but it wouldn't be meaningful repetition. 
I would add to to that state. Th- this is the kind of statement that fans and owners hate, right? This guy doesn't have a love for the game or passion for the game. He's getting paid millions of dollars. Why doesn't he love football? I would play for free. Or, in the words of a Jets rookie who was on a podium next to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell last week, I would die on the field. That's what the NFL Jamal wants. Adams. Go Jamal Tigers. Jamal Adams. I would die on the field. It would be a great place to die. And Roger Goodell didn't say, no, 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 Jamal, we don't want you to die on the field. We, we, we love your passion and we love football. <laughs> we love your passion, but. But we don't want you to die on the field, literally. Yeah, that would be bad for ratings. So the point I was going to make about Cutler was you put that in one bucket. The other side, as I mentioned in the intro, you have Adam Gase, the head coach of the Dolphins. They need a quarterback. He's familiar with Cutler. It's they easy. had a good relationship. Yeah. It's easy. So this brings us to collusion, right? Whenever you have a situation like this where you have a player who, whether it's because of some like criminal allegation, some legal thing, some, whether they're for some reason persona non grata, you always have one individual team, whether and whether it's an owner or a coach, and they step up and say like, you know, we weighed all of the different things with Alden Smith or we weighed everything with – who with Richie Incognito, and we decided, you know, we're going to make this decision and we have all the systems in place and the locker room and the front office. And we've talked to him and he he's sorry for what he's done and he has great character. And But they make it such that we've done all the work and we are putting this on us. We're putting it on our culture to make it so that this guy works and fits here. It's like a one-team situation. And so that's what needs to happen is that one team needs to like stand up and you're not like making, you're making a big like attention getting move that like we are the team that has single-handedly decided that Colin Kaepernick belongs in the NFL because of us. And if he wasn't going to our team, he wouldn't play in the NFL. So, so make us the like focus of all of your love and vitriol. And so that's what hasn't happened. Now on collusion, I would say, but let me interrupt there and say that NFL teams have made a moral calculus here that it is possible to sign Richie Incognito or someone else who has had a domestic violence case or committed some crime or done something else that an NFL front office will call a distraction, right? Um, and in this case, where you have a player who has done none of those things, a player who has done nothing but use his voice to talk about. And also use his behavior that has obviously bothered a lot of people, but use those things to talk about a perception of social injustice and racial injustice in America. That's what he has done. That's that's true. I agree with that. So on the question of collusion, though, um, Michael McCann has written about this a bunch, the Sports Illustrated legal dude. Um, and there's a legal definition here. Um, two or more teams or the league and at least one team – joined to deprive a player of a contractually earned right. And that contractually earned right can be the right to, you know, have teams offer you a contract and free agency. So I would I shouldn't say that I would be surprised given what we've seen in the past from the NFL, from the commissioner's office and from NFL teams. But I would still be surprised if there was proof of collusion such that Kaepernick could bring a grievance and there would be an email or there would be notes from an owner's meeting like there were in Major League Baseball in the 80s when a collusion claim was verified that they were suppressing wages for free agents. So this is a di- these are different questions, right? Is there collusion happening and is there provable collusion happening? I think on the second, probably not. Probably I, not. I don't see how he, he would be able to prove it unless – these people are dumber than than I think they are. Which is certainly possible. I mean, certainly as, possible as, within the realm. Within the realm, as I think that the uh, the the concussion brain injury history in the NFL demonstrates. There's there was demonstrated true. true collusion or demonstrated paper trail among NFL employees um, and management to suppress data and medical evidence that there were risks to players' health. Okay, back to, um, you mentioned Barry Bonds earlier in the show. That's the most famous recent instance of a player alleging collusion. He was 44 years old. Um, He was still, even at that age, 
more than capable, more than more than capable of being uh, a star in, in baseball, being a, certainly an above average hitter. And he couldn't get anyone to offer him a contract. He, alleged, he, he offered to sign for the minimum salary. He alleged collusion and an arbitrator eventually ruled many years later that Bonds' theory, this is according to McCann, that Bonds' theory of collusion was logical, but he lacked evidence of teams conspiring against him. Right. And evidence has to be something concrete. It's got to be an email or a text or voicemail or a conversation, some record that demonstrates that ownership or management have issued an edict um, or tried to find a way or have instructed each other or agreed in some fashion to not do something. All right. So I guess what we're left with is we think, I think both of us think that collusion is happening, that it's not going to be provable and that there isn't that one quote unquote easy situation for Kaepernick to step into where it would be, um, you know, a, an easy decision or, or a not titanically difficult decision for a, a team to decide the onus is on us. Like we're going to, we're going to take this on. So right. I think the only thing that it would move the proverbial ball at this point, you know, you mentioned Derek Carr. Well, you know, if players really, really think, and I'm not, I wouldn't tell anybody what to do with their lives. But if players really think this is a horrible injustice, then they should all just kneel for the national anthem and make, you know, the owners, you know, decide that maybe the NFL shouldn't exist because nobody would want to watch uh, any games played by people that protest the anthem. Yeah, two final points. One is that you talked about a team bragging about how they have the infrastructure in place to deal with a reclamation Love project. Love that infrastructure. There's no infrastructure required here. <laughs> to sign Colin Kaepernick. They don't have to do anything. They don't need a team of therapists. No drywall? To, um, to, to help integrate Colin Kaepernick into their clubhouse and into their community. The second is that, you know who really should take a knee and pray and be grateful? Dan Orlovsky, Geno Smith, Mike Glennon, Brian Hoyer, Josh McCown, et cetera, et cetera. Dan Orlovsky is going to take a knee after running out of the back of the end zone for his safety. I figured out recently, or not figured out, but I learned recently that an official official NFL YouTube account has like NFL's like most embarrassing or worst plays ever. Why would you do that to your own players? But one of those was Dan Orlovsky running out of the back of the end zone. Recently signed NFL free agent quarterback, Dan Dan Orlovsky. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Now is the time for Afterball. Stefan, you have an Afterball name for us? Yeah, let's pay tribute to the Netherlands women's soccer team. They beat Denmark 4-2 to two in the Euro final. Uh, they made the final over Germany, who had won the tournament six times in a row. France, England, Sweden didn't make it. Over in the United States, the U.S. team was losing to Australia. 2019 is shaping up as an excellent World Cup for the women. Um, the Dutch team, player of the tournament, Lika Martens, Josh. Unlike Neymar, she plays her club soccer for Barcelona. She scored three times. I watched the final. She's good. Afterwards, she tweeted, Dit team ist G-O-U-D, which does not mean good in Dutch, Josh. It means gold. It's pronounced hoot. Dit team is hoot. And then she tweeted for her non-Dutch speaking followers, a dream has come true. Trophy emoji, gold medal emoji, hard eyes emoji. Love the hard eyes emoji, Josh. What's your Lika Martins? I get to go first this week. Yeah. What a, what a privilege. If you were at the City Open tennis tournament last week, we're going to talk about this more in our bonus segment. But if you were there or if you were anywhere in the vicinity of Northwest Washington, D.C. or anywhere on the eastern seaboard, you may have heard something that sounded a little bit like this. Oh, 
Mohamed Lowney is scared the entire audience there. That was the voice of chair umpire Mohamed Layani, who is probably most famous for being the man in the chair during the John Isner Nicola Mahu match at Wimbledon that went 70 to 68 in the final set. Layani, who received a crystal bowl, a Wimbledon tie, and silver cufflinks for sitting in a chair for 11 plus hours, seems worth it, um, said at that time, when you're so focused and every point feels like a match point, you just don't even think about eating or needing the bathroom. For Layani, who hails from Sweden, every point does indeed feel like a match point. I do not know and cannot stay with confidence whether uh, or when he thinks about eating or needing the bathroom. But as you heard at the top, the dude is demonstrative. Um, The website Tennis Panorama interviewed him and noted that he was the most stylized score caller in the game. Uh, He laces his 40s and 15s with intrigue on big points, Tennis Panorama said. The voice, it should not be a monotone. You have to vary your voice for the stage of the match. You can go up with the tone, down with it, Leoni told Tennis Panorama. You can get a little sense of it in this clip from the final game of Isner Mahu when uh, the American had match point at 68, 69, 30, 40. How will Mahu respond? Thank you, thank you. 30, 40. How will he cope with the enormity of this situation? 30, 40. How you present the match is very important for everyone on TV, Leoni said in that interview. You don't want to go in when the crowd is clapping. You have to settle them down, then give them the right tone of the score. Everyone has their different style. The most important is to be clear and astute when you're in the chair. You should not mumble. You should not say the score when the crowd is loud, unless it's a big point or a point you want to control. 30, 40. You don't want to step when there's a lot of excitement. It's not a big stress. You take a deep breath, then say the score. 30, 40. Well done. He has had run-ins with Nick Kyrgios and Fabio Fanini, who are the exact two players you would expect a kind of arrogant chair umpire to have run-ins with. At a match in Rome earlier this year, Fanini called him fucking arrogant and a clown and a loudmouth after uh, the Italian player didn't agree with Leoni's ruling on his opponent's serve. Uh, I was at a match on Tuesday, Nishikori and Donald Young, where Leoni was the chair umpire. And it gets a little annoying after a while. It's just like a little much. Like, dude, we know it's 30. We know it's 40. We know it's 30, 40. Just like chillax a little but bit. But do we know if it's 15, 30? <laughs> we don't. Or 30, love. But let us, in defense of Muhammad Leoni, let's note he can also overstep his bounds in a helpful way, as when he gave Gael Monfils some advice after the Frenchman fell behind three love in the first set of a match. Let's listen. It's three love. I'm good. Brave to become upset for one whole game. Come on. You're too good. It's like one break. Yeah, no one's come on. You should not. It's the center so it could be in, could be out. You know I cannot touch on this one. This is the worst for the chair umpire. If it doesn't work out for Muhammad Leani as a chair umpire, or I guess it already has worked out, if he wants to end his career, I think he has the official voice of sportocracy. Stefan, yeah. I think he could be like Sepp Blatter in FIFA the Animated Series or something. The man's got a great voice. Say whatever else you want to say about Muhammad Leani. The man has a great voice. He's got good pipes. Unfortunately, he was not the chair umpire. Unfortunately, he was not the chair umpire when I went uh, to the City Open. You have to go back next year. Stefan, what is your Lika Martins? Well, two weeks ago, we talked on this program about girls playing baseball. And last week in this space, I included in sixth place on my top nine greatest sports moments of my life, my little league team, the Jets, insane 6-5 win over the Cubs in 1975. And since it's summer and the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania begins this week, next week, begins next week, sorry, 3-2-1, begins next week. 
Today, I'm going to try to bring all of these threads together with a uh, little youth baseball potpourri, Josh. Let's briefly return to the Jets-Cubs game because I think it deserves more scrutiny. The Cubs had one of those giant 12-year-olds who struck everybody out. We were all convinced he was going to make it to the majors. Craig McGann was his name. He was like 5'10". And I don't think he went to any of the public elementary schools in town, so he was a big mystery to all of us. He pitched the shutout in our opening day 21 to nothing loss to the Cubs. He was on the hill again. I guess it's not a hill in Little League, so he was on the rubber again for the rematch. I did manage to swing blindly and get my bat on what had to be a 70-mile-per-hour heater. The ball blooped over the first baseman's head for a single. Big moment. As I was reminiscing about all of this, the Washington Post did a story about the D.C. Little League Championship game last week. One of the teams was Northwest Little League in the D.C. neighborhood where I live. The other was the reason the Post was covering the game. The first all-black team to make it to the final in the 30-year history of the D.C. tournament. Those kids play on a team called JMS. The initials are for each of the three leagues they represent, one of which is named for Satchel Paige, the other for Maine. Amy Peanut Johnson, who pitched in the Negro Leagues and who at age 81 attended the championship game. I love the kids in my neighborhood, but let's be clear. They are mostly white and in baseball, as in most of their lives, they are privileged. They go to summer camps. They play on travel teams. By contrast, according to the Post, almost all of the kids on JMS live east of the Anacostia River, which the Post called a historic dividing line between the city's haves and have-nots. The paper quoted the founder of the Mamie Johnson League, saying they've struggled to raise money for equipment and fees, which, as the Post noted, is not an issue for the families in the neighborhood where I live. The coach said he wants to give kids another option to football in the inner city. So I was hoping that in reading the story that the JMS team would come out victorious and advance to the Mid-Atlantic Region Tournament in Bristol next week with a shot at going to Williamsport. Alas, after jumping out to a 6-0 lead, JMS wound up losing 7-6. I did just donate to the Mamie Peanut Johnson Little League online, and you can too. The story got me thinking about the last feel-good tale of an all-black Little League team, the kids from Jackie Robinson West Little League in Chicago, who won the U.S. championship in 2014 and later had their title stripped because the coaches recruited players who lived outside of the district's boundaries. This did not end well, Josh. The league was suspended. It quit Little League, joined Cal Ripken Youth Baseball, and there are, predictably, lawsuits. The white suburban coach who blew the whistle on the Jackie Robinson team last year sued Little League, claiming he received death threats and suffered public humiliation because Little League initially blew off his claims. And the parents of 13 Jackie Robinson players also sued Little League, ESPN, and, wait for it, Josh, Stephen A. Smith. Why Stephen A. Smith? Because the lawsuit claims in the ensuing media coverage, ESPN and Stephen A. Smith accused the Jackie Robinson West parents of falsifying documents and perpetrating a fraud upon the Little League. Those statements were patently false and were baseless and without merit. Now, if Stephen A. Smith were sued every time he said something patently false, baseless, and without merit, ESPN would be drowning in litigation. So it is probably just as well that a judge in June tossed ESPN and Smith from the lawsuit, saying his speech was protected opinion. The Jackie Robinson players have moved on, though. In fact, seven of them played on a Chicago team that made it to the finals of the junior division of Major League Baseball's Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities World Series over the weekend. This time, the Jackie Robinson players lost 8-6 to six to a team from Philadelphia that featured, and this will get us back to where we started with girls baseball, Monet Davis, who pitched in the same 2014 Little League World Series and wound up, of course, on the cover of Sports Illustrated and asking Gino Ariema to recruit her. How did Monet do in the tournament? She did great. She started the semifinal game. She gave up one run on four hits in five innings. She finished the tournament with an ERA of 1.5. She's also playing softball now for her high school, Josh, and she still wants to play basketball in college. Go, Monet. Go, Monet. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort, and our intern is Max Cohen. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out The Gist which is about the news. Wait, what's that about? It's about what's going on in the world. Huh. They're also spiels. Really? Hosted by an up-and-coming podcaster by the name of Mike Pesca. I'm going to have to listen for that guy. 
never met him, but I hear good things. I liked his interview, though, with uh, Kevin McDonald, Kids in the Hall. Definitely check that one out. Uh, the Gist comes out every day. You can find it at slate.com slash The Gist. Pike Mesca. Pike Mesca. I'm writing that down. I'm Josh Levine for Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zalmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.